Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Well, thank you to our worship team. Hey, if you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's about three quarters of the way through your New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It'll be on the screen if you uh, don't have your Bibles today. And uh, while we're meeting now, online campus is watching as well. Uh, um, our Rossville campus is watching as well. If you're new to our church, uh, you may not know we have a camp in Rossville area and they meet every week in live worship and uh, then me watching this sermon just now. So it's good to have them join in with us as well. First Thessalonians chapter four. Now, started a, rev- uh, a sermon series back in January called Revival, Rekindling the Fire of Jesus as we went through our 21-day devotional this year that uh, our staff wrote uh, about revival. That's our theme for the year is revival. We want to go old school and just have that thought down. And so these sermons I'm preaching, understand this. We cannot usher in revival. It's a move of God. It's a, it's a rekindling of the fire of Jesus. But here's what we do know. Though we may not can pray revival down, we know prayer marks a revival. You won't have revival without prayer. And so we see all these indicators that they don't create revival, but they're always surrounding revival. They're always surrounding a great awakening. And so today I want to preach on one of those subjects, and that is the rapture of the church. And I want to preach on this subject ready to go, because if you go back and study the Great Awakenings and look at the markers of a Great Awakening, there always became a renewed emphasis on the return of Jesus. So I want to spend some time there today, and let's talk about the return of Jesus. Are we living in the last days? What do you think? Well, it's hard not to see it, right? It's hard not to turn on the news. And uh, just about everything that comes on the news, I can trace back to a Bible verse. But if you ask pastors, uh, are we living the last days? Lifeway just did that. And Lifeway asked evangelical pastors, are we living in the last days? Are these signs, Jesus talked in Matthew about birth pains of the return of Christ, uh, the, the things that would foreshadow it. And they asked pastors, People who study this, you know, for a living, are, are we in the last days? Well, rise of false prophets and false teachings. 83% of evangelical pastors says, yes, that's a sign we're in the last days. Or the love of believers growing cold, 81%. Traditional morals becoming less accepted, 79% said, yes, that's a sign that we are in the last days. Wars and conflicts, earthquakes and disasters, people abandoning their Christian faith, famines, anti-Semitism toward Jewish people worldwide, right? All of those, you, you poll pastors and they believe that wholeheartedly these are signs that we are in the last days. Well, what do you mean we're in the last days? Well, Lafay came along and said, by last days, do you mean Jesus will return in your lifetime? When they asked pastors that, 97% agreed he's coming personally to earth, but 56% believe he'll show up in our lifetime, 24, not sure, 20 dis- disagree. But the fact is, most pastors that you'll poll today believe we are living in the last days and that we are so close in the last days that he'll come before my life is over. But is that really any different than any other time in the world? I just went back to my, my, um, 
my life, right? I was born in 1968, and to save you the math, I'll be 33 this year, born in 1968. And if you don't come up with that number, your math is wrong, not mine. And, uh, uh, but I'll, I'll be 33 this year. But I went, so let me go back in my lifetime and see who else predicted the end of the world. So if, if you go back to 1969, even Charles Manson uh, said Helter Skelter would be a, an apocalyptic race war that would be the end of days. And, of course, we know he was wrong. Now, not all of my people are serial killers on the list. But you go to Pat Robertson. Uh, said in 1976 on the 700 Club that 1982, Jesus would come back. Now, that, that's coming on and not happened. Then, Edgar C. Wisenant said that it was going to be 1988. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Could Return in 1988. And you may make fun of that book now, but in 1986, it scared us to death. Well, Jesus didn't come back in September 1988, so Edward said his math was long, wrong, and Jesus was come back in October 1988. Lou Farrakhan, head of the Nation of Islam, said um, uh, the Gulf War was the, Armag- the beginning of Armageddon and that the world would end in 1991. Obviously, that wasn't true, like most things he says are not true. And then Y2K. How many of you were alive during Y2K? Let me see your hand. You're alive during Y2K? All right. I don't want you to lie to me. You're in the Lord's house. How many of you stored up stuff in in Y2K? Let me see your hand. See, you're lying. I know you're lying. I know you're lying. 930 service just as full lied too. I know you're lying. I know you had 100 pounds of pinto beans stored in your basement or crawl space like the rest of us did. Because we all thought Y2K was the end of the world, right? You know, I'll tell you who predicted Y2K would be the end of the world. Everybody did. We all thought the world was ending in the year 2000. Well, we got past that, and then you come along to May 2011. Harold Camping said that the world was going to end, and he, he kind of went on a little, he just predicted a lot of dates. None of them came true. But you got past 2011, we got a little nervous. Remember the Mayan calendar? Anybody remember the Mayan calendar? Like movies about it and stuff, and the world was going to end in December. I don't remember what, somehow the, uh, the uh, I don't know, the calendar didn't go past 2012, whatever. But when people really thought the world was ending in 2012. And then you get to Jean Dixon. Many of you don't know Jean Dixon. She was a, a psychic from many, many years ago. Jean Dixon predicted that the world was going to end in 2020. Woo, that was a close one right there. I'm not lying to you. <laughs> that one scared me a little bit. I mean, uh, I don't believe in Gene Dixon, but still, woo, she, she, is, she is close to anybody. And look, I could have kept going. People have future dates on the calendar, right? Like, they're still predicting it. But I, I don't, I'm not a date setter. The Bible says we'll never know the hour or the day of the rapture. So I'm, I'm not a date setter. But if I was going to be a date setter, I'm going to do it what David Powell does. David Powell is a scientist, and he says there's coming a time in the future when the sun is going to go supernova, and it'll get 256 times larger, become a red giant than what it is now, and it eventually will crash into the moon, causing the moon to fall to the planet and, and crash on the earth and destroy most of us. But then if that doesn't get us, the sun is going to uh, envelop us, and life as we know it will cease. And he has predicted that that will happen 7.5 billion, 9 billion years from now. And he said, let him him know if it doesn't come true, right? Like, that's kind of me. I'm going to go with 7.58 billion years, like we're playing prices right, and see if uh, I get mine in first. I mean, there's a lot of predictions about the end of time and the end of the world. But I love this Margaret Atwood quote where she says this, it's the end of the world every day. 
for someone. Every day is the end of the world. The fact is, what's ending need not be our concern, but what's coming should be our concern. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming again. I believe that'll happen in two phases. First of all, there'll be the rapture of the church. During turbulent times on earth, tribulation times on earth, the church will be raptured out and uh, the bride of Christ will go up with the bridegroom and those that are alive will go, those that are dead in Christ will go. And then a certain time after that will be what's called the second coming of Christ when he will descend in all of his glory. Now, sometimes you'll hear people get confused and they'll morph those together, though they're not morphed together. Almost always in the Old Testament, you saw them talking about the second coming, not the rapture of the church. Now, today in this sermon, I'm not drawing a timeline. I actually did that a couple summers ago. And go back on our website. You can find it on our app. You can find it when I ask questions. I put a whiteboard on the, uh, on the platform here, and I drew what would be what I believe to be a timeline of the second coming. But when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this passage is about the first thing, the rapture of the church. And here's why I preach on this today, that during times of revival, churches became very focused on the rapture because they came to this stark realization that this world is not our home. You know that, right? If you're a believer in Jesus, this world is not your home. The Bible says we are citizens of another land, that we are strangers in this land, that we are ambassadors of another land. And I tell you that because if you're living for this world, you're going to be in for a rude awakening one day. And Paul tried to open our eyes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look, beginning verse 13. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look, look in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we say to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm mentioning it again in just a moment, but Paul is actually having to correct in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 some erroneous teaching about death in the end times. There's a, there's, a, there's a belief going through the church at Thessalonica that's wrong about death in the end times. And so Paul wrote this passage not to give us a detailed map of the order and how everything's going to lay out. Paul wrote this map to get us thinking about when the Lord comes again. And so here's what I want to do. I want to go through and I just want to make three observations that Paul said about the, sec- the rapture of the church. Number one, this. Here's what Paul was trying to say. Number one, death is not the end. 
And notice what he says in verse 14. Paul, Paul is writing about those who have fallen asleep. Now that word fallen asleep there does not mean taking a nap. It was a word that was used in Greek to speak of the sleep of death, to die. It literally, it meant to be laid out in death. And Paul says they were uninformed, literally in the Greek, ignorant of what was going to happen after death because there were those who were in their midst that were denying the resurrection and denying the afterlife. There were those that were saying there is no resurrection, even that Jesus did not rise from the grave and that there is no afterlife, that when you died, that was it. Now they were still teaching Christianity, but just Christianity without the good stuff. You know, there's no death. There, I mean, there is death. Then that ends it all. There's no resurrection. There's no afterlife. And so Paul starts this off by laying it out that telling us this, there is something coming after death. And here's what he says. Jesus is coming again. And after he comes in death, he is bringing those who have died in the Lord with him. Here's why Paul had to say that. Because we aren't careful, we trip over the simplicity of the statement. That the first thing we have to let seep into our, in our minds, in our hearts, and our lives is that, hey, Paul was trying to get the point across, death is not the end. You've got to get it in your mind. It, it's something you have to know that there is an afterlife, which means this world is not all there is. Why? Because, listen, your enemy will trick you into living only for today. And Paul said, no, you can't just live for today. There, there's something after this. Death is not the end. You've got to get in your mind. You've got to get in your heart. You've got to get in your heart because you've got to understand your decisions need to reflect eternity. Something you've got to know. It's something you've got to show. Number three, it's something you've got to sow. You've got to get it into your living. That once I know it in my mind that death is not the end, once I, once I show it in my decisions I'm making every day, I've got to show it in my life and my daily life has to be an expression of the truth that this world is not all there is, that death is not the end. Why? Because we get in this trap of living only for this world. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to hear me say this. Death is not the end. Sometimes we talk about hell on earth and how bad uh, life is and, you know, uh, maybe when life is going to be over and we hear people talk about, you know, uh, uh, coming back to earth. We hear people talk about annihilation. We hear people, all these things that signifies death is just the end. There's no afterlife. But can I tell you, Paul and God said the exact opposite of that, that if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, hear me carefully, when you die, there is an eternity beyond that and the bible calls it eternal death if you're a christian you need to be reminded of that that if you are saved if you do know jesus is in your heart listen to me jesus in your life you need to be reminded of the fact that this world is not our home i'm just a passing through and my job is to lay up my treasure somewhere else here. Why? Because Paul is trying to tell us you can't go around living in this world and not have figured out what's going to happen after you die or prepare for what happens after you die. Because listen, when they wheel your body around in a grave or a funeral home, that is not the end of your life. You're spending eternity somewhere. Death is not the end. How many of you like to... Uh, how many of you like to play Monopoly? Can I see your hand like to play Monopoly? Yeah, me, I hate it. I hate it. 
I hate it because my wife's better than me at it, and I tend to just not want to play any game I can't win at. And then I hate it because it takes forever to play a game of Monopoly, right? Forever. And I bought us a wooden Monopoly game one time, a really nice one. And I, I just saw it in the basement the other day. It's what made me think about it. I saw a wooden Monopoly game. And uh, we used to set it out on our dining room table. And after dinner, we would eat uh, we'd eat and we'd clean up. And then we'd go play, you know, 15 rolls of Monopoly. And it, I think um, we started the first game when I was like, uh, you know, 18. And we finished it last week. Like, it's been a, it takes forever to finish it. It takes forever to finish a game of Monopoly. But did you know, did you know? If you're a Monopoly fan, you can win Monopoly in 21 seconds. A professor at Notre Dame figured out that you can win Monopoly in 21 seconds. See, if you want to know where your education dollars are going, there you go. Man, we win Monopoly. I'm thrilled to know you win Monopoly in 21 seconds. And I know some of you are doubting that you could win because it takes three days to lay out all the stuff to actually play the game, but you can win it in 21 seconds. And some of you would doubt me, but you know me better than this. I have proof. Player one, turn one. How do you win Monopoly in 21 seconds? Well, player one, turn one, rolls a six and a six, lands on electric company, does nothing, road doubles, rolls again. He rolls a six and a six again, lands on Illinois Avenue, does nothing, but he rolled doubles and he goes again. Rolls a four and a five, lands on community chest, draws a card that says, Aaron, your favor, collect $200, and now he has $1,700 to his name and his turn is over. Player two, turn one, they go. They roll a two and two, land on income tax action, pay 200, draw the card, pay $200. Now they're down to $1,300, but they roll doubles, so they they go again. They roll a five and a six and they land on Pennsylvania Railroad and they do nothing. Round one. Player one turn two. Rolls a two and a two. Lands on Park Place. Purchases it for $350. Now has $1,350 left. Doubles. Therefore they roll again. And now they roll a one one and land on Boardwalk. They purchase it for $400. Now has $950 but they roll doubles and so they go again. Now they roll a three and a one. They land on Baltic Avenue. Collect $200 for passing go. Now has $1,150. They purchase three houses for Boardwalk. Two for Park Place for $1,000. Now they only have $150 to their name. Player Two, turn two goes. They roll a three and a four. They land on chance. They draw the card that says advance to boardwalk. The rent is $1,400. And praise God, the game is over. <laughs> praise God. You say, well, I'd, I'd love to do that. Well, here's your chance of doing it, according to a statistician at Notre Dame University. You have a one in that number chance of that happening to you. Now, I didn't actually look it up before the service, but I figured it out in the early service at 8 o'clock. That is a trillion. So you have, I like saying the number, a one in 253 trillion, 899 billion, 891 million, 671,040 chance. They said once every 253 tri trillion games or so. You got to really like Monopoly <laughs> to play 253 trillion times. That's your chance of winning Monopoly in 21 seconds. Now you tell me, preacher, why don't we tell you that? Because I wanted to show you an astronomically, by the way, it, you, you have a much better chance of winning the lottery, much better chance of winning like Mega Jackpot or whatever it's called, much better chance of winning the lottery than you do of doing that. Because why, why, that's where I started on this thing was, was the chance. But here's what I want to know. Did you know 
you'd be better off betting everything you own on winning Monopoly in 21 seconds than betting your soul on the chance there's no eternity. I want to show you, show you the absurdity of that. Because God's telling us in 1 Thessalonians 4, death is not the end. Now, I want to tell you, if you are a child of God, what a promise that is. Can I get a hallelujah there, right? Because for our loved ones who have gone on before this, when we bring them around in death and we say our goodbyes and they died and knew the Lord and we know the Lord, that is our promise that one day they'll be raised from the ground. One day we'll be raised up off the ground and together we'll meet in the air. That's our promise. But not only that's a promise to us that this world is not all there is, that there is life after death, that there is heaven after death for those who know Jesus that is our promise that we cling to but if you're not saved if you're not saved hear me death is not the end you need to quit living your life as if death is the end as if this life is all there is you need to get something on your mind beyond today and beyond tomorrow and beyond next week and beyond next month you need to start thinking bigger than your calendar because there's coming a day when a calendar has i won't have one appointment on the calendar it just say heaven because death is not the end what comes after death is either eternal life or eternal death. And that leads me to the second thing Paul wants you to know, and number two is this, you can wait too late. He said it in verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, verse 16, the dead in Christ, that's the most important phrase, in Christ will rise first. And don't get hung up on the specifics of the rapture. You, you don't need the details of when the rapture is going to take place. Here's what Paul's trying to tell you. For those who don't know Jesus, hey, listen, you can wait, wait too late. For the, when the rapture happens, right, it is happening for those who are believers. The dead in Christ will rise again. Those who are alive in the Lord will be caught up together with him in the clouds. If you do not or have not or do not know him as your Savior, when the trumpet sounds, listen to me, your fate is sealed. And you've waited too late. I mean, we walk around this planet like we'll never die, right? We walk around this planet like, you know, accidents happen to other people. Other people get bad news at the doctor. Other people die. We, we walk around this planet like, like you know, we're, we're all good. We got it. We're going to live for forever. But I'm going to tell you, if you die without the Lord, it is too late. If you are alive when Jesus comes without the Lord, it is too late. So whether you're into the world is when Jesus comes or you're into the world is when you die. And I know you're thinking, preacher, I'm so healthy. I've got a long time to make decisions. Can I tell you that the lie of the devil is not don't ever get saved. It's just don't get saved today. You got plenty of time. Do, do you have plenty of time? Do you? There's nobody in that graveyard behind our church that's there unexpectedly, is there? Oh, well, wait. Maybe there is. Did you, did you see the plane this week that engine parts fell off? Can I tell you that's scary if you're on the plane? But it's really scary if you're on the ground, too. 
Like, you'd just be walking around. Some of you guys are like, man, I'm healthy. I got a long time to live. Well, unless the plane falls on your head and then you're gone. You're gone. I mean, we've had stories of plane parts falling through roofs of houses and killing people in bed. I'm telling you, God wants you if that happens. He came after you. God's like, no, I'm not waiting on a doctor, bad news. I'm going to drop a plane part on them out of the sky. So you're being, no, I'm telling you, that's the world we live in. And Jesus is coming through death or through rapture. And if you've waited too late, you've waited too late. There are no do-overs. There are no second chances. I want to tell you here today, you're hearing me preach the gospel and you say, well, preacher, I'll get saved next week. Hey, I just want to be honest with you. This could be the last gospel message you ever hear. You, you probably don't know this guy, Stefan Thomas. He's a German-born programmer who lives in San Francisco. He's been on the news a little bit recently. How many of you know what Bitcoin is? You know, you know what Bitcoin is? How many of you understand Bitcoin? Let me see your hand. I've been trying to study it. I don't get it. I'm so confused. I know you mine Bitcoin, but you don't use shovels or anything. You use, use computer programs. And there are some computers that are, there's only a fixed amount of Bitcoin, like 24 million or something. The creator who's fuzzy, we don't know. It's just all crazy. But like Thursday, last I checked, Bitcoins were worth like $47,000 a coin. And Stefan Thomas owned 7,002 Bitcoin. As a matter of fact, he mined them out, got them given to him for payment, I think, years and years ago when Bitcoins were basically worthless, but he accepted them as payment on some jobs he did. And, and they go on something called an iron key. And the, it's, a, it's a hard drive. It's called an iron key, but it's an encrypted hard drive that you have to have a password to get into it to either sell or, or, or buy Bitcoin. So it, it's a little complicated process, but... He's got an iron key with 7,002 on him. He took his payment, but guess what? It's been years ago, and he, he's forgotten his password. Well, the problem with that is you only get 10 chances, and he's used eight. So he kind of made the news. They did a story on him about it. And since then, he's, he said, I have people asking me, have you tried the word password? Can I just say to you, if your financial life is being protected by the password, password, we are here to help. Like we'll help for free. Right? I'll come up with something better than that. We, we are here to help. He's had mediums contact him, sockets contact him. He's had uh, computer experts contact him. For now, he's taken the, the, the iron key. He has locked it away in a safe deposit place and he won't tell anybody where it is and here's what he's hoping he has two chances left and by the way if he tries it two more times and doesn't get it the disc is locked for eternity it can never be unlocked again the 7,000 bitcoin are lost so he's locking it away hoping that sometime in the future somebody can develop the program that can easily break uh, that can read his password somehow and that will break the bitcoin you say why all the fuss over a thumb drive with 7,002 bitcoin on it because those 7,000 Bitcoins are worth over $300 million. He was going to go to sell them. Like, he's not a millionaire. He was going to go sell them and make a little money off of them. Well, a little bit, $300 million off of them. And he can't remember the password. And he has two chances left, and then it's gone forever. And I read that story this week, and I thought about some of you sitting in this room today 
that you think you have unlimited chances to get right with God. Some of you, the thoughts of losing $300 million put a pain in your heart. Some of you losing $3 or $300, but, but listen to me, you're gambling with your soul. You're playing with your eternity, and you have no idea how many chances you have left to trust Jesus. You are running out of chances every time you hear a sermon, every time you hear the gospel, every day you get up is one more chance, and if you're here today lost, I want to tell you, you are running out of chances to be saved and you're buying into that old lie of the devil of oh get saved oh the devil will tell you oh you need to get saved just don't do it today oh you got some more living to do you got some more life to do you got some more fun to have you got some more joy to have it's a lie of the devil i'm telling you run out of chances so preacher how many i have left i don't know you may get up tomorrow you may not wake up i'm always amazed when someone dies you've been there it's nothing to me it's always hard to fathom when somebody you were talking to one day and three days later you're in a funeral home with them. Right? That's hard to reconcile. But it happens every day. And I don't know how many chances you have left. I don't know how many times you're going to get up. I don't know when Jesus is coming again to rapture us. I do know this. You can wait too late. Never have a chance again. That applies to you if you are saved. Can I tell you, if you are saved, you are running out of chances to live a gospel life and to lay up treasures in heaven where moth or rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal, Jesus said. Here's the lie we as Christians believe. When I get more time, I'll do more. When I get more money, I'll give more. When I free up some space, margin in my life, I'll serve more. Can I tell you that you're never going to get that time? You're never going to get that money. You're never going to get that space. You have to decide to just, today's an opportunity to do something for the kingdom of God. And once it's gone, it's gone. You're running out of chances. And there are going to be a lot of Christians standing before God at the bema seat of Christ, ashamed at how they live their lives. When they see chance after chance after chance after chance to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And I know, I, I've been there. Oh, you young couples in the room, I know, you, I've been there, right? I've been there where you said, well, when you get these kids grown, we'll have more time. You won't, you won't, you won't. I'm, I'm, I'm three grandkids in right now and I'm exhausted. Like, I, it's, I don't have any more time. I don't have any more time. The, the young ones, that my daughter, she's got little kids, manage them at home. We're, we, like, just, you never get more time. You're always busy. You're always busy. The lie of the devil is, oh, Oh, serve them. You'll have time later on. The problem is you're missing year after year after year after year after year. You, 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 we, we can wait too late. Let me show you the third thing Paul said about the rapture. Number three, it's, it's both a promise and a problem. We read these verses, I always, almost always, not always, but almost always read these verses at a funeral, typically at the graveside, if nobody's read them, that we claim the promise of Scripture, right? The Lord is coming back to get those who are His. The dead in Christ will rise up from the grave. The alive in Christ will fly away to meet the Lord in the air, will be reunited, literally in the clouds, it says, with our loved ones, and will always be with the Lord. And eternity has begun. So Paul said, when someone dies, comfort each other with these words encourage those with these words it's okay to grieve just don't grieve like people who don't have any hope because if they died in the lord and you die in the lord then we're all in the lord for all of eternity what a 
great promise that is. And by the way, the world can make fun of that all they want, but it's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. That's our promise. But that's also a problem. Because though our eternity is sealed by the rapture, if we know Jesus, so is the eternity of those who do not know God. This passage is both a glorious promise and a glaring problem. For those of us who are saved, it is a glorious promise of the return of Jesus. For those of you who are not saved, you don't know 100% sure that you're going to heaven when you die. If you don't know, it is a glaring problem. By the way, for those of us who is a glorious promise, we look forward to it. For those it's a glaring problem, you dread it. Close your Bibles and I'm finished. Finished. So I'm about to share with you the dumbest sermon illustration I've ever used in my life. You ever go down a rabbit hole on Google? Anybody ever done that? Come up later, need to shave, like take a bath, it's been too long, and you're like, what, what have I been? I did that. I did that. So I figured if I did it, I'm going to have to use it in a sermon so I can say I did it for the Lord. And so, um, and it's kind of dumb, but let me end with it because I'll tie it together at the end. Because I studied the economics of a buffet, all right? How many of you like buffets? You like buffets? I like buffets. Sherry and I went to, we were out of town a few days, a couple of weeks ago, just to get a little rest. And, and we, we were at a, we had, a, we had a breakfast buffet, which, by the way, is my favorite buffet in the world, breakfast buffet. And, and they serve it to you now. They don't let you put your hand. That's fine with me. I don't, that's better for me, as a matter of fact. I love that. So I, I got my plate, and I skipped all the stuff at the beginning, and I went straight to the bacon, right? Because breakfast buffet, all I, I like, literally, all I care about is bacon. I need any other stuff at home. I want bacon. Because she really, really won't serve me. I don't know why. She won't serve me unlimited bacon at home. I don't understand why, but she won't do it. And so I went to the buffet, and I said, I want bacon. And he misunderstood me. He thought I said I wanted some bacon. And he put like five pieces on my plate. And I'm like, I, I, want, I want the bacon. And he's like, put like another piece. I said, guy, I'll be here all day if you need me to be. I want the bacon on my plate. That's all I'm getting on my plate is bacon. Stick cut bacon. It was so good. He piled a plate full. I, I carried it loud and proud back to the table and ate every bite of it. Got in line again, did it twice. He rolled his eyes, saw me come the second time. I don't care, I don't want bacon. I always wondered, can you make money at a buffet, right? Because people like me, we, we're not eating what they want to eat. And so I, did, I, I dove deep on buffets. Can you hang with me just for a second, right? Like you're rolling your eyes in your head. I see you, but hang with me, all right? The average buffet in America costs $20. Yes, I know that. That's a real number. It costs $20. For every $20, the buffet will typically spend $19 on food and expenses. And with a good customer, they will make $1 on the buffet, which is a 5% profit. And so they usually break even on food and then they try to make money on cheaper labor. Golden Corral is one of the most famous buffets in America. There are 498 locations in 42 states. They usually have a 5,000 square foot uh, uh, store that seats 475 people. And on a typical Saturday, they'll see 900 people come through the store. And the chain that owes them, or the brand that owes them, is called Ovation Brands owns them. And did you know they serve up, they counted a year, 85 million dinner rolls, 47 this blows my mind, million pounds of chicken and six million 
pounds of steak, which adds up all that to about 50 billion calories a year they order. Well, buffets by nature are afraid of people like me. See a big boy walking in and they get nervous. Put cameras on us. They watching us, see what we do. So they have some tricks up their sleeve. True. They put the cheap stuff up front in the buffet line. Studies show they, they do buffet research, in case you're wondering, by the way. This is all science. This was not a waste of time. It was all science. 75% of the people who go through a buffet line always put the first thing in line on their plate. 66% of the people who go through a buffet line put the first three things in line on the plate. So you know what they do? They load up the front of the line with all the cheap food that's cheap for them. Knowing that, they use smaller plates. Uh, studies show the smaller your plate, even at home, the less food you'll eat. So they give you smaller plates so you fill it up quicker because they know eventually you're, most people, not me, I have no shame at a buffet whatsoever, but they know most people are going to get embarrassed going back and forth to the buffet a bunch of times. Not only that, the third trick they have is they keep your drink, your sweet tea, your soda, your water. They, man, they fill it all the time. You think they're being a good waiter. No, they want you to fill up on that so you don't eat the food. And I actually have a chart. Three kinds of buffet people you find yourself in here. Diner number one eats a pound and a half of potatoes, pound and a half, not pound and a half, serving and a half potatoes, serving and a half salad, serving and a half of pasta, serving and a half of chicken, serving and a half of steak. That's their typical customer. They'll, they have $7.40 in food. After overhead, they make $1 and they're fine with that. Then they have you vegetarians. You know who you are. Diner number two, you're a cash cow for them. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say cow, but you're a cash, <laughs> you're, you're a cash carrot for them is what you are. And, um, Diner number two, you eat four servings of potatoes, four servings of salad, four servings of pasta, no meat. They make $3.70 on you or 19% off you. And, and by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, they have another trick too. Scientific. They use bigger serving spoons on the cheaper food and smaller tongs on the meat always. So that means, you ever notice the mashed potato is like the size of a snow shovel have you noticed that they're fine with that they're fine with that do you notice the steak it's like a pair of tweezers down there and they've sliced it up really really small like they're daring you to get another piece and so they have that well but then diner number three is me five servings of chicken all god's people said amen five servings of steak they lose on me the bacon guy eight dollars and fifty cents when i walk in the door eight dollars and fifty cents or they go in the hole 43%. Y'all proud of that research? Here's what they said. One manager said, two big boys can ruin an entire Saturday. <laughs> two big boys. I know that's dumb. It's the dumbest thing I've ever said in church. It's the dumbest thing I've ever put on this church. But I'm telling you for a reason. Here's why. You go to a buffet, for one person it's a promise, right? I can really eat all I can eat. And I'm going to stay here until I've ate everything I can eat. But for somebody else it's a problem. The problem is if you actually eat all you can eat, you'll put them in a hole. 
So you got the guy who's claiming it as a promise. I'm going to enjoy this till Jesus comes. And you've got the guy that sees it as a problem, hoping, hoping it doesn't happen. Hoping. That's the exact two groups of people that are in this room today. There are some of us here that are claiming the rapture as a glorious promise. There's others of you here today, you're hoping it doesn't happen. You're hoping you don't die. You're hoping Jesus doesn't come. You're hoping you get some things straightened out. And you're living the most dangerous life you can possibly live because you're running out of chances with your eternity. And today could be your last chance. Say, preacher, you're trying to scare me. Are you kidding me? If you're not scared, something is wrong with you. It could be your last chance. Is it a promise? Or is the rapture a problem? Just stand with me. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. Nowhere. I don't always do this every Sunday, but I want to do it today. Nobody's looking, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. How many of you just by, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just a moment. Don't do it now. How many of you would just say, you know what? I'm 100% sure there's no doubt in my mind that if Jesus were to come for me tomorrow in death or today in the rapture, I am ready to go. And that is a promise I cling to. And I can't wait to get to heaven. If that's you, raise your hand. Preacher, I'm 100% sure. I'm, gl- I'm glad about it. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Many hands went up, many hands could not. So let me ask you about those who could not. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. How many of you would say, preacher, 100%, that's tough. I mean, I'm 95, I'm 50, I'm 75, I'm, I'm, I'm 10%. I don't know, preacher, you may be here 100% sure you're not going to heaven you die. 90% is not good enough to play around with your soul for eternity heads are bowed eyes are closed how many would be honest before God this morning and just say I'm not coming to where you are I'm not going to embarrass you I'm not going to call you out I'm not going to do anything weird I just want you to admit it yourself how many of you and show it to God how many of you would say preacher I'm, I'm not I'm not 100% sure and be honest preacher thinking about death or the rapture scares me a little bit but I want you to pray for me that you would you slip your hand up hold it up just for a minute as I kind of look around the room teenager adult thank you thank you somebody else hey i'm just not sure I'm not sure heads are bowed eyes are closed if you're here today and you raised your hand or maybe you didn't but you would you you want to know for sure i'd love to lead you in a prayer and it's not the it's not the pra- there's no prayer that saves you but the intent of your heart is to give your life to jesus to trust in what he did on the cross of Calvary for you. The prayer helps express that decision in our lives. And if you're here today, you want to be 100% sure, pray a prayer something like this with me right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I, I can't earn heaven myself. But I believe that Christ died on the cross for my sin and that he rose again on the third day. And so just now, by faith, I ask Christ into my life to save me, 
forgive me of my sin and give me a home in heaven. And I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. If you prayed that prayer with me, you are born again. Here's what I want you to do. We have staff down at the front over to my right at next step stable, over to my left at next step table, and I'm standing here in the middle. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to slip out, come down, take one of us by the hand and just say, hey, I prayed that prayer. Maybe you have more questions about me, about that. You'd like us to answer some of your questions. We're, we're not afraid of your questions. We had the same ones. Just come tell us your questions. Maybe it is you're here today and you need to join our church. God's led you to this church. You want to join our church, just come tell one of our staff guys that. They're on my right and left, your right and left. Just come tell one of those guys that. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've been saved, never baptized. Just come tell them that. They'll tell you what the process is. Maybe you have questions about becoming a Christian. Come see me, them. We'd love to help. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. One One more question. Can we be honest just for a second as believers? How many Christians would say this morning and be honest enough to admit it? Hey, I... I know I'm going to heaven when I die, but I'll be honest, there's some things I need to straighten up, fix up, clean up, and get right before I stand before God. I really wouldn't want him to come today. I really wouldn't want to die today because there's some things I'd like to fix first. Would you be honest enough to admit that and say, preacher, that's me. Just raise your hand up and hold it up. Say, hey, that's me. I got some things. Thank you. All across the building. Can I tell you, you may want to lead the way this morning. Find a place at the altar and kneel and just say, Lord, I mean you need to talk before this service is over. Father, draw us with your spirit. You've spoken to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.